In this episode, we spoke with Megan Carter-Stone, who before business school managed social media for political candidates. We chatted about her political awakening, working on the campaign trail, and the impact of social media on our democracy. Welcome to the Fuqua Show, for the stories, experiences, and insights of Team Fuqua. I'm your host, Thomas Chang, and today's guest is Megan Carter-Stone. Welcome, Megan. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm very excited to hear about your very interesting background and story. So a brief intro for everyone. Megan Carter-Stone is a second-year MBA student at Fuqua, and before business school, she worked in political polling and communications, including social media for a presidential and Senate campaign. She's pivoting into brand marketing and is co-president of Fuqua's Marketing Club. How is that? Anything you'd like to add to your intro? That sounds great. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's jump in. So my first question is, is this for you, Megan. There's two things that a lot of people run away from, and those are politics and social media. But you jumped headfirst into both of them. Why? When I was in middle school in Kentucky, I participated in a program called the Kentucky Youth Assembly. And the goal of the Kentucky Youth Assembly is to bring in kids from all around the state and get them involved in Kentucky politics. And I did this and I was absolutely hooked. I got to write and debate bills that were, I mean, they're fake bills, right? But you're doing this with kids from all different backgrounds, from far eastern Kentucky to Louisville. And it really opened my eyes to how so many people can have the same end goal, but different perspectives on how to get there. And yeah, I just fell in love with it. I did it all through high school and I knew I wanted to go into politics from then. In terms of social media, ever since I got Facebook, I was just obsessed with writing Facebook statuses that I thought people would like. And I think I really got a dopamine hit from that. And I think I have forever been feeding that dopamine need with social media. I remember in high school, I saw a post from Planned Parenthood on Facebook. And I remember thinking, how cool would it be to be the type of person who like gets to create these political social media posts? Terrific. And I would love to ask you, as someone who tried debate club and some of these things and thought politics was so dry and boring, what about it really captured your interest? I like that it was so personal, right? People have such personal relationships to politics and, you know, they don't like to talk about it, but I kind of think that's the fun part. Like it's a little uncomfortable, but you're also sharing something usually kind of vulnerable about yourself when you're talking about politics. At the end of the day, I'd say like the dry part is policy. I mean, I'm not a policy person. Mm. Some people love policy, but uh, the politics part is like a gamification of policy. And I mean, that's in some ways like disgusting, right? Mm -hmm. But in other ways, it's fun and it's an intimate way to talk to someone. Can you flesh that concept out a little bit, that difference between politics and policy? Yeah. So I see politics as kind of like the the way to get your policy passed, and you can do that by lobbying. You can do that by voting in elections. You can do that by, you know, marching in the streets. Like, I think that's the politics side. I think the policy side is the the written word that goes into bills and people who are maybe advocating for, I guess it's, you know, there are some crossovers, right? Sure. But people who are advocating for an ideal, but like they're doing like research on it and that that side. And I ha I guess I would say I have really strong values 
but I don't have strong policy views. And that's because I think there are many policy views to get to your values. Sure, sure. And that's what you were saying earlier about having the same goal, but different ideas and different ways to get there. Absolutely. Well, then you went off to college and did you study politics? Did you did you work in politics in college? Yeah. So I was in Young Democrats and co- I'm a Democrat. Mm-hmm. I was in Young Democrats in college and I worked into research labs that were politically focused mm-hmm. in the government department. But I ultimately majored in marketing because what I really like about politics is not the policy, right, sure. that you'd learn in the government department or public policy department. I liked selling that policy. And what were some of the things that you worked on? In those labs? Yeah. So I worked for one professor that studied third party political movements. Mm. So I worked with him on doing research on the Tea Party. And then I worked in a, a research lab that studied social networking and political psychology. And that's, I studied how people change their language structures when they're on social media to serve different end goals. Okay. okay. Now, after college, you went off to Washington, D.C., as many young politicos do. They sure do. And you worked in political polling and market research. What surprised you here? <laughs> There's so much that I want to ask, but let's start there. I I was surprised by how much we weight polling data. And I think you can see that out of the 2016 election. I didn't work on national polls, I worked on statewide and local polls. So like a democratic organization or like a state democratic party would hire us to do all of their local polls or statewide polls. And I was shocked by how we just really don't know anything about the electorate. And I think we we try to model it based off of if people have previously voted and how likely how likely they report voting. But I think there are just huge flaws in the polling system when it comes to who's going to answer the phone and take a poll. How are we comparing phone surveys to online surveys? Cell phones are really expensive, but like are people answering their cell phones when a pollster calls? Uh, and I, I think we over... We wait incorrectly, but it's really it's a really hard art to do, and I've lost a lot of faith in our polling system. Interesting. So what I'm hearing is that even at the state level and the local level, mm-hmm. it's very off, or it's very very inaccurate or incomplete. Not just these national polls that have gotten all the attention recently. So I think I think it's much easier to get an accurate local poll. I will not. I don't want to. Say, I think our polls were good polls, okay. but I think. You know, people put so much faith into polling. People, I, I have bet money on polling. Um, but I, I think it's maybe something we pay way too much attention to. Interesting. And for people who've taken the market research class here at Fuqua or have worked in that space, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts between the things that you learned in the class and, and what you did in, at work? Yeah. We just would love to hear anything you have to say? Sure. So I think there's certainly crossovers, especially just like understanding how survey data comes back and Mm -hmm. how to process it and understand it. I frankly think it's probably easier to get a read on market research than Mm -hmm. it is on polling. Mm -hmm. And that's because you have real-time data when you're doing market research. If you're like selling a product, you know exactly like how many items you sold last week, Mm -hmm. right? But if we're comparing political polling to, you know, a consumer. I'm, I'm going into consumer goods. Sure. So like voter, you have voters on one end and consumers on another and you have marketing on both sides. Mm. Right. But ultimately instead of 
voting and the politics side, you buy something. Right. And it's much easier to see like, oh, like this past week, so many people bought an item. Mm. But in polling, it's all of this energy leading up to potentially, I mean, recently this has changed, but you have a few weeks to vote. And you're, so wouldn't that be weird if a marketing campaign was saying, buy our product, buy our product, buy our product in November, it's January. Mm. And then November rolls around and you only have a few opportunities to buy that product, right? Like, would your market research from February be particularly accurate of people buying your product in November? Not at all. Right. So that's, you know, one of my hesitations on polling and why I think market research has a better chance of being successful. Interesting. Interesting. So after this political polling and market research work, then you went on to work for a few campaigns, presidential campaign and a Senate campaign on social media. And before we get into the, the specifics of those campaigns, I would just love to hear what an average day was like. Can you give us a behind the scenes of, of your experience there? <laughs> so there is no two days are alike on a campaign mm-hmm. ever. Uh, COVID, I was working on the Senate campaign during COVID. But I think I really had this image that we all come in, we have our meeting, we're like, today, we're going to focus on talking about this healthcare policy. And we're going to make sure we put out blah, blah, blah on social media. That literally never happens. Hmm. There's, it's much more chaotic and like, oh, this thing in the news broke, we have to respond. How are we responding? Are we writing a press release? Are we doing a tweet instead? Is our candidate going to add that to their stump speech? It's just so much more fast paced and chaotic than I ever predicted. So you worked for two campaigns, is that right? I did, yes. The presidential one was for Amy Klobuchar. And for those who don't know, she was a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president in the 2020 election. Yes. And then for Amy McGrath for the Senate running against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky in 2020. Yes. Would love to hear, maybe let's start off with, what was hardest about these jobs for you? So I think there was a bit of confusion when I was hired for the Klobuchar campaign. I I was only on the campaign for a few months. I left to work for Amy McGrath. Okay. And I thought I was being hired as a digital ad strategist. So I had previously worked in ad placement and understanding targeting and, oh, this area, we think this message will resonate, things like that. And I think they thought they hired a photographer. <laughs> And I can take a great photo on my iPhone, but I don't know Photoshop. I'm, I do my best with my iPhone, right? So I think there was a bit of disconnect. They wanted me to do more graphic design and photography and, you know, follow the candidate around, take pictures. And that just really was not my specialty. Mm. Um, and for their digital ads, they used an external agency. So that wasn't done in-house. So there was, you know... I just, I didn't feel like my skills were really being used well on the campaign. And that's so interesting too, because I imagine even companies have this question with social media of what do we use the social media for? Is it for photos and just (laughs) shots of whatever's happening? Or is it something else? Is it something more strategic, something more higher value? I mean, I hope everyone sees social media as something strategic and higher value because it absolutely is. And Mm. I think people really have adapted that. And then how about the Amy McGrath campaign, the Kentucky Senate campaign? Yeah, I was her social media manager. So I wrote tweets and Instagram posts and all of that. And we had specific graphic designers who were absolutely fantastic uh, on like a whole separate creative team that made those assets. So that wasn't me. (laughs) Can you tell us more about what, again, that looks like to be a, a social media manager for a major political candidate 
what, what do you do in that kind of a role? Get scared. <laughs> <laughs> there are several different types of political posts you can do. You can do fundraising posts, mm-hmm. right? Like click on this link, donate money. Hopefully your post is a little better than that. Right. But mm-hmm. you can do policy posts. You can do quick reaction posts. So like, my opponent did something terrible and this is my feelings on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, comment on news posts mm-hmm. and you can also do kind of personal posts of your candidate with their kids sure. or on Halloween, happy Halloween, sure. you know, things like that. So there are more, but that's kind of an overview. So there are some posts that I kind of considered evergreen posts mm-hmm. and those were a post about a policy or something that like a common talking point that we used against an opponent or a to- common talking point for our own candidate, but content that's not going to go bad in a few days. That would be weird if you waited three days to post. So I wanted to make sure that I had a good mix of, you know, topical posts and these evergreen posts. And sometimes these evergreen posts had a purpose, right? Like you want to raise money, but sometimes the purpose would just be so you're on the record supporting a particular policy. And the goal in the end was not to raise money or get likes and clicks. It was just so in the future, someone can point back and say, oh, no, my candidate actually spoke about that issue five months ago. Sure, We have a record of that. So social media is also an open record. I think what people don't think a lot about is that, and maybe this has changed with like the Trump era, right? Candidates really love their own social media. (laughs) They're deeply tied to it, right? They see it as their personal voice speaking to voters, but also just like their friends and community, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think for some candidates, it can be particularly difficult to give that up. So on both of the campaigns I worked at, the candidate ultimately had sign off on what went on social media. For everything. Everything. Wow. Yes. Which is difficult when you have a busy candidate and it's like, can we get this tweet approved? (laughs) Um, You could have some, like the evergreen post you could get approved in advance, but if it was something really pertinent or breaking news, that could be hard to do, especially if your candidate. So there's also like the disconnect sometimes if a candidate feels a certain way, but the way they feel doesn't necessarily align with the messaging of the campaign. Mm. It's not that there's a conflict or that what the candidate is saying is in opposition to the campaign. It could just be that the candidate wants to use some phrasing that they feel is more personal to themselves, Mm. but would probably be better for the overall marketing strategy of a campaign to use our tried and true messaging that we've been using to really hit home a purpose. And especially something as personal as being a political candidate, that can be kind of a hard fight. I'm sure. I'm sure it can be. Wow. And let's flash back a little bit. You talked about growing up in Kentucky and being a middle school student, high school student, just captured by politics and messaging. Was there any expectations versus reality of when you were younger versus working in the field? Maybe a leading question, but... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I thought, and this is super common amongst political staffers, Mm -hmm. that we all thought we were going to be civil rights attorneys Mm -hmm. turned politicians. So I think I probably was a bit more idealistic about how politics worked. There are quite a few, like, TV shows that capture... I think I thought it probably would be more like The West Wing. The West Wing. Um, And it's not. But it's also not unlike The West Wing. Mm -hmm. It's just in The West Wing, things work out, and everyone's idealistic, and Mm -hmm. no one's trying to, you know, crush you because they want your career. So uh, I think... But I, I guess I... 
I wasn't shocked, but I thought my work-life balance might be a little better. And it wasn't? <laughs> it was not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've talked about social media potentially deepening division and polarization Absolutely. in the country and maybe the world. I want to ask you, Megan, what do you think a healthier social media culture would look like, either in politics or in general? I don't think we should have social media. I think it, frankly, is a threat to democracy. But I also think that the point of social media is to get clicks and mm -hmm. engagement, right? And, and it's, money. And money, right. But the point of democracy should not be to get clicks in a fast soundbite, right? So if you're tweeting out kind of hot topic, hot takes, right, that will get engagement, I think you... I, I guess ultimately you have perverse incentives, right? Mm. Um, and when you are using social media as something that is so core to the political system right now and political discourse right now, it's bad. Mm. <laughs> it is using this flawed system to communicate in politics. And you're, and I saw this on campaigns, you're incentivized to demonize your opponent because that gets clicks, that mm. gets likes, that gets people fired up. And 280 characters, you don't have a lot of room for nuance. And I think our politics needs a bit more nuance. And did that realization influence your decision to come to business school and, and try something new? Yeah, I've always been interested in consumer packaged goods since childhood. Mm. But I, so I've always kind of thought in the back of my head, I might, this might be something I want to do. But I, I think ultimately working in an environment that was so I was contributing to the polarization. I was contributing to demonizing people. That's not what I want to do with my life. Very, very admirable in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and so just what is next for you then? I'm going to Clorox. I'm moving to San Francisco. They have an office in Oakland. I will be an associate marketing manager at Clorox, mm -hmm. and I'm really excited. And how does that feel for you to be transitioning from marketing people and causes to physical products and consumer goods? Yeah, so I don't want to say it's easier, but if you're selling, I, I'll let me use a different example. That's not one I'll be working in. Sure. But if you're selling bottled water, there's no concern about your bottled water getting really fired up about some political issue and tweeting out hot takes, mm. right? Like you can control that. Right. <laughs> so ultimately when it's a person doing their own brand, there's risk mm. to it. Uh, so I think in from a marketing standpoint, it seems like there's a bit less risk of your product just going rogue and tanking everything. I think ultimately it just is you're selling something, you're selling a person or you're selling a product. In marketing, I'll get to work a lot more cross-functionally. So I'll get to work with everyone from engineers to salespeople. And I, I'm really excited to have conversations with people who have really different backgrounds than me, but also probably quite a bit more expertise in selling whatever I will be marketing. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And that's a little different than politics. You don't work with engineers in the same way. But I, I think that answered your question. Absolutely. And I'm sure that you're going to do a great job no matter who or what you're marketing in the future. Thank you. Last question, going back to social media, is even outside of the political context, do you have any tips for listeners who might want to change their own social media habits, whether it's what they post, what they consume, how they use the different platforms? Delete your apps. <laughs> Delete your apps. And let's say, how about one one level below that, if, <laughs> if, if that's not feasible or tenable for whatever reason? I would say, so my personal social media is not great. I'm not getting loads of engagement. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I guess if you, huh, wow, if you want like a popular Twitter, it's always beneficial to engage in conversation with other people who are leaders in your field or whatever you, however you want to be seen. Posting more often is always good. 
But yeah, Twitter's like a dumpster fire right now. So <laughs> my my specialty is really Twitter. So that's what I feel more comfortable talking about. I am no Instagram pro, so I don't <laughs> feel like I should comment on that. And then how about just for, for consuming for social consuming media? For consuming social media. I think follow accounts you care about. Follow accounts that will make you a better person. Something I really like about TikTok that's coming up, and TikTok has its own issues, right? Sure. But something I really like about TikTok is that it's not necessarily people you know. So on Twitter or Instagram, it could be your friends just saying like, look at my new item or look how cool my vacation is, right? And I think that really creates an envy and inferiority and negative dopamine. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think TikTok, it's just like people posting funny videos or interesting videos or insightful videos, but you're not necessarily lusting after their life. And I think that's probably a healthier way to consume social media. And we could, I'm sure, have a whole episode about (laughs) TikTok and the politics of TikTok. Oh, my word. (laughs) But but for today, thank you so much, Megan, for coming on the show. Thank you. I learned a lot, and I hope everyone else did as well. And best of luck moving forward. Thank you. 